coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, Monday. It is Monday, September 11th, 2023. Hard to believe it's been 22 years since that fateful day. And it was on that fateful day that yours truly was on the air in Mobile, Alabama. I was a morning show jock with my co-host Jay and Pablo and little Joe, who just passed away about, uh, I don't know, three, four months ago, I guess. It's been since the spring or summer. Nonetheless, we were all on the air doing our normal morning guys pop radio antics. Yuck, yuck, yuck. And I can remember, just as I'm sitting here now, across from me, across the console, as I was manning the station, across from me was Jay facing my way, like two desks facing each other, I guess, essentially, except we were one big desk. Behind him was big plexiglass window that led to the news and AM station studio where Kathy was operating, uh, handling the news headlines for the day for us when we check in with her. And there was a TV behind Jay's left shoulder, I believe, facing my direction. Now, bear in mind, this is 2001, right? There were no flat screens. There were no high-def televisions. There may have been, but we didn't have them. Certainly on, on Mr. Bernie's budget. Uh, Mr. Mr. Dittman owned uh, the radio station, and he um, he was uh, cheap. Uh, let's just leave it at that. Uh, nonetheless, we did not have the finest equipment. We didn't have the latest television sitting in that corner, but I, the television was on. And I want to say we had the local NBC affiliate. I think it was WPXI at the time. And I remember that because Little Joe had a crush on one of the news anchors, and tried vehemently to win her over, both on the air and off. Uh, that did not work. Um, so we were watching, I think, the, the Today Show. And the first thing we saw was, oh, it looks like a little helicopter or something crashed into the building, right? One of the Trade Center towers. And we didn't think much of it. Like, is that something in Mobile, Alabama to break away for? No, not really, but, you know, there it was, and we were keeping our eye on it. We just kind of went back uh, to doing our thing. But as the show wore on, and you know how it was, that first half hour or so, we started finding out, no, that's not a helicopter. It was not a traffic helicopter. That was not just one or two people in a helicopter at all. It wasn't a helicopter. It was a plane. So then the thought was, well, it was a small plane, right? No. The cameras that were recording the event at that time were so far from the World Trade Center because... Never much need to have cameras near the World Trade Center for things of that nature, right? So as the TV and cable news helicopters were getting closer, it became apparent, that's a big gas. That's a big dent in that building. That had to be a commercial plane. And the FAA starts letting us know, oh, we are missing a plane. And the picture starts coming clearer through the plexiglass window with that standard deaf television. That was not going to be an ordinary morning. We had no idea just how unordinary, extraordinary that day was going to become. Some half an hour, 45 minutes later, obviously, as we're watching live, 
the news coverage of the one plane crash, we see another crash into the other building. And while for much of that time, we thought clearly that was an accident. The first one was an accident, right? Didn't think anything terrorism. We didn't think we were under attack. Those sort of conversations weren't being had, at least outside of the White House, the Situation Room, the elementary school where George W. Bush was reading to kids at the time. Maybe the Department of Defense was having those conversations, but America on the whole was not. And then the second plane hit, and we realized, no, this is not an accident. And we start getting details from the countryside in, what is it, Shanks, Shanksburg, Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And then another plane crashes into the Pentagon. And I remember what it was like. <laughs> 22 years ago today, there I was, this 27-year-old radio DJ. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I lived in a country that was literally under attack. People who are under the age of 22 have no idea what that feels like. And folks my age who didn't live through Pearl Harbor had no idea what that felt like. Very unique feeling in these United States. It's hard to believe it's been 22 years since that all went down. And there's a lot to take stock of since then. Where we are as a country, our response, our misguided response, finally bringing the perpetrators to justice. But even that bears some history lesson that I feel like in this country we don't want to talk about. There's an appetite or a lack of appetite for discussing this nation's history on race. There also happens to be no appetite whatsoever for discussing America's perplex and cumbersome and curious relationship with Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden prior to 9-11 that folks don't want to talk about. And maybe on this day, it's not appropriate to discuss how we got to where we were on that day, why Osama bin Laden was so angry at the United States. And there's never, ever any justification for an attack of that nature. Innocent lives lost. But there is a discussion to be had about the complex relationship with Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden and the United States. How we once subversively supported his efforts to grind the Soviet military down with our covert efforts, dollar signs, the most part, in Afghanistan in the 1970s and 1980s. And then our efforts to cover that operation up. And one of the ways we tried to cover that operation up was by covering bodies, Al-Qaeda bodies, in rubble. Obviously, Osama bin Laden didn't take kindly to that. But again, that's a conversation for another, another day. It's just notable that it was 22 years ago today that we as a nation knew what it felt like to be under attack. And I can't tell you how long it was, but it was at least a matter of hours, if not half a day, maybe a day, maybe two days, three days, where we as a country felt overwhelmingly united 
all on the same page. And then you start seeing the signs of xenophobia. And then you start hearing the discussion about perpetrators and the same sort of ugly xenophobic reactions after Pearl Harbor where Japanese restaurateurs were closing early and racing home before being met with hostility and then internment camps. We started seeing some of that ugliness after 9-11 targeting our Islamic community as well. We don't like to teach a thorough look back at our nation's history, and yet the reason it's so important to have such a thorough look at our nation's history is to avoid repeating the same mistakes, right? I have no kids to leave this world to, no grandkids on the way either, obviously, but I still worry about the potential repercussions for our two-plus decades in Iraq, our two-plus decades in Afghanistan, the messy exit, the release of (laughs) Taliban prisoners obviously did not work out so well for us in securing that peaceful, harm-free exit for our men and women in uniform and those working in various other capacities in Afghanistan. Hundreds of thousands of lives lost in both countries combined, and who the next radicalized Osama bin Laden will rise from someone who lost one of those hundreds of thousands of loved ones. But on this day, we should honor and commemorate the some 3,000 lives lost in New York, Pennsylvania, and in Washington, D.C. People who woke up that morning to catch a flight, to head to work, or to head home to see loved ones coming from being on the road at work. It was a Tuesday, I believe. So I have to imagine a lot of that was work-related commuting. The thousands who were just heading to their office buildings in lower Manhattan those who were at their job, at their desk, at the Pentagon, those who made the brave decision to work together in coordination on a jet plane to overtake their captors to prevent further deaths inside another target, likely the U.S. Capitol building. I was having lunch today with my former sister-in-law and mother-in-law, And we were talking about 9-11, how much time had transpired. And one of them remembered an event where on the steps of the U.S. Capitol, members of Congress broke out into song on that night. And it did happen. And I found this after a press conference where, oh, my God, Denny Hastert. Denny Hastert spoke. That's how long ago it's been. We all know the Denny Hastert story didn't go well after that, right? Anyway, this, this did break out as some of the speakers were leaving the dais. Yeah, members of Congress broke out into song.
brief few hours that day and maybe for a remaining day or two after 9-11, 22 years ago today, we, for a little while, felt like the United States of America. A fleeting sensation we hadn't felt since World War II, haven't felt much since afterwards. More Ron Show after this on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show for Monday, September 11th. Today's WTF moment brought to you by the city of Atlanta. Once again, my gosh. So the Cop City referendum activists decided to go to City Hall today and turn over their 116 thousand signatures to be verified to get the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility question on the ballot. 160,000 signatures, nearly double what's necessary to put the question on the ballot. And then I get a tweet. I follow Sean Keenan, who writes for the New York Times, uh, Daily Beast, Atlanta Civic Circle. Breaking. It appears the city clerk is refusing to begin the cop city vote signature verification process, citing the recent 11th Circuit Court ruling. (laughs) Another tweet I saw about, well, around the same time, actually, from GSU professor of law, Anthony Michael Kreese. This is wrong. The 11th Circuit Court does not dictate the meaning of Georgia law, the basic obligations of the municipal clerk under state law or municipal ordinance are unaffected by the federal court's refusal to provide equitable relief to the petition drive organizers. Wait, there's more. Marissa Pyle at uh, Rapid Response for Fair Fight Action tweets, the city is refusing to start the verification process for cop city vote petitions, citing advice from outside counsel fighting to disqualify the referendum in court. The memo was released in a closed virtual press conference held by the mayor's office. She followed that up about an hour later, and this was about four and a half hours ago. First, Atlanta announced this. I love this summation. First, Atlanta announced a signature verification process, one that Georgia and national Democrats sued against in 2019, arguing it disadvantaged marginalized communities. Now, after many Democrats said nothing. Remember, this is Marissa Pyle at Fair Fight Action. Now, after many Democrats said nothing, Atlanta is refusing to verify the cop city referendum signatures at all. So it was about three hours ago, the Cop City Vote folks held a short press conference just outside City Hall. I'm disappointed to report that the city of Atlanta chose to sandbag us this morning. About a week ago, the 11th Circuit issued an order staying the district court order, allowing non-residents to participate in the process. That left ambiguous the status of our deadline to turn in the petitions. Within minutes of receiving that order, we reached out to the city council, to the clerk's office, to the city attorneys, asking for their interpretation of what that order meant, and we heard nothing back. So we expeditiously planned to submit the signatures to let the clerk know they would be coming today. And last week I managed to talk to one of the city's attorneys who said, we're not gonna give you any statement, we're not gonna give you any position on what the effect of the deadline is. That's just not something we're prepared to answer. But we showed up here, we tried to hand in the boxes, and we got handed a sheet, a clearly memorandum, clearly written in advance, saying that they were going to receive the boxes, but they weren't going to start the verification process. And then they made one of their attorneys stand there as we asked follow-up questions, and she had to say, all I can say is what's on the sheet. Their position appears to be that while they can accept the boxes, the law doesn't allow them to verify the signatures because the signatures were submitted after the original due date of August 21st. There's two problems with that. The first is that it's just wrong. 
under the Supreme Court's well-established test for First Amendment rights in Burdick and Anderson, the Supreme Court made clear that a government entity cannot place a restriction on the free exercise of expression and petition the government unless it has a significant compelling government interest. Here, by the city's own admission, there is absolutely no interest. In fact, they're taking on an additional burden by storing the petitions and refusing to do anything and engendering delay in order to not let people participate in this process. They are incorrect that they have a legal obligation to do that. In fact, just the opposite. The United States Constitution compels them to take action. But the second problem is that their position is insincere because it's not really what they believe. After I was informed of this petition, of this position, I pointed out to them that if their concern is that submitting that they can't get started without uh, legal permission, then what we could do is we could call the district court right now, or we could file something in the afternoon with the district court, asking the district court to tell them that under the First Amendment they're allowed to take the petitions. And we could both consent to that order, and they could start verifying the petitions as soon as this afternoon. And they said, oh no, well, we, we're not going to do that. We're not going to agree to that. And so the argument that they are confined by the law is insincere. What is really happening here is they're using any method possible to prevent people from having a chance uh, to <laughs> having a voice in government. We are going to go to court, we're going to ask the district court to provide relief, but we really shouldn't be in a position of doing that because the city council has lots of options to us, to it, if they want to allow the people's voice to be heard. The first and most obvious is that they could simply put the petition question to the voters. There is no requirement that the only way a referendum get to the voters is by a signature process. The city council themselves could put this question to the voters. They could go out and they could say, hey, we voted to approve Cop City, but it's now clear to us that many of our constituents are very interested in having a voice in this question. We're going to respect that process and we're going to put it on the ballot. The second thing they could do is that they could go today and tell the city attorney, we do in fact want the clerk to start processing and engage in verification. They can say, we have taken an oath of office to uphold the US Constitution. We think there is a clear First Amendment interest in citizens being able to express themselves, and we want you to get started. And then the third thing, if they really do believe, if they sincerely believe they don't have the authority to execute their oath, then they could instruct the city attorney to join our submission to the district court today and not oppose the district court granting relief that allows them to start verifying the ballots, if they refuse to uh, verifying the signatures. If they refuse to take any of these options, it lays bare what is really happening here, which is that the city council is using any means necessary to try to defeat this effort, even if it means preventing the right of voters to be heard. If this, was, if this is merely a delaying tactic, what's the harm in delay? Uh, the harm in delaying is, among other things, if you read, uh, among other things, if you read the, uh, their filings to the 11th Circuit, they've consistently taken the argument that additional <laughs> delays engender Purcell problems. That's a doctrine that essentially says that courts shouldn't intervene in a political process because it's difficult for states to administer an election. When they create problems of their own that they have the ability to solve, ironically, it improves their legal argument that courts aren't allowed to intervene on our behalf and solve problems on our behalf. There's no reason to cause a delay. There's no reason not to engage in verification now in a process that they've already begun to outline and seemed committed to doing until we showed up and handed them the ballot. The city's going back to that deadline, the August 24th deadline. Do you feel that if you would have turned in the signatures by then, the same process would have happened, that they would have 
started to validate the signatures? Well, we're not sure what argument they would have asserted then. One of our concerns at the August 21st submission is that if we submitted some then and then we continued to collect under the district court order, then they may have pursued a different legal argument. For example, that those were two separate submissions or that some of them are submitted after the deadline. The uh, city of Atlanta's interpretation of law has consistently put us in an impossible position where no matter what decision we make, they are going to assert that the decision is invalid. And that entire process does not need to occur. That, that act of decision making, that approach is itself an impingement on the First Amendment exercise of the petition collectors. Because they know they've lost the... They never had it. They've lost the narrative, and they know if it goes to a vote, they're going to lose it. Back after this. Take the Ron Show wherever you go. Download the America One Radio app to your smartphone and listen on the go. Or in traffic, wishing you were on the go. The Ron Show on America One Radio. So I know I tend to harp on the fact that I believe that the city of Atlanta has long lost the narrative on the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility debate because it doesn't appear that they ever really wanted to try to win over the public with this project. Whether it's shoddy, I mean amateurish, grade school-like audiovisual presentations Oh my God, remember the, the, it was like a film strip video that they released social media a couple weeks. Cringeworthy stuff. Ugh. <laughs> the only thing that was missing was like the, you know, the popping and the crackling of the film strip, the, the whirring of the film strip, uh, the projector rolling in the back. It was just cringeworthy. Whether it's that or, uh, again, just from a PR perspective, making it appear that they do not want or care for the citizens' input. How many public forums have they hosted where hundreds of folks would speak out against the public safety training facility and one or two might speak in favor of it? They didn't care then. So activists said, oh, okay, well, we want to put this to a referendum and we believe that there is a precedence and there is, and then the city argued. Well, no, there's, that's not real. That's not a real precedence because well, that's that's a county. That was that was a county issue, and this is a city issue. So they went to court to fight that. At which point, you know, your spidey your spidey senses go. I get the feeling they don't want this to go to referendum. They don't want the citizens to weigh in on this. Those who are proponents who sit in city council chairs and the mayor's chair as well think. Well, you elected me, and that—that's the referendum. No, <laughs> no, and and I don't, I don't, I don't think that there's any preconception that Atlanta residents are looking to put everything on a ballot, a la California's Constitution. But the activists have said for a long time, we believe we can garner what is it, 59,000, it's like just under 58,000 signatures necessary. 58,231 valid signatures. They just turned in twice as many as needed. And, and what a sight to behold. These When, when it comes to narrative, it's, it's, it's like this, this loosely organized band, and, and I say loosely, whereas the RICO indictment from Attorney General Chris Carr last week says, well organized, or as uh, <laughs> I was watching the Georgia gang uh, from Sunday, uh, they taped it, it's either Thursday afternoon or Friday, Friday morning, I believe, and um, 
I'm watching it this morning, and Phil Kent, the conservative uh, firebrand that's always on the panel, Antifa! It was Antifa! Uh, 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 it's Antifa! Phil, is, is Antifa in the room right now? Do you see Antifa? Show me on the doll where Antifa touched you, Phil. Dude, Antifa's not organized. There is no organized Antifa. Do you go to Antifa.com or Antifa.org? Hell, let me do that right now. Is there an Antifa.org? Antifa's not an organization. <laughs> you go to that website and it goes, Antifa's not an organization. With a tweet from Donald Trump, May 31st, 2020, the United States of America will be designating Antifa as a terrorist organization. And then you see, Antifa's not an organization. Antifa! By the way, I just have to t- I just have to go off on this slight little rant here. As I'm watching that show yesterday, uh, first segment they talked about the names that were dropped late last week, the many who could have been indicted, but Fonnie Willis decided not to indict. There were like 39 names, and and Phil and uh, what's that? Janelle, the, the two conservatives on the path. Well, I'd be suing if those were my names. I, they should they should sue. Uh, there's no evidence there, and this is a, a sham. These are mostly Democrats on the grand jury. Same grand jury indicts 61 <laughs> on a RICO statute for Cop City, and, well, you see the seriousness of these charges, and this is obviously organized and evidence. And <laughs> I mean, the, the pivot was breathtaking, how this grand jury is tainted, mostly Democrats from Fulton County. I mean, that's the Mark Meadows argument, why he wanted to take his his case to federal court so he could get it out of Fulton County and get a more uh, suburban jury pool, right? Well, I hate to break it to anybody that's not familiar with Fulton County. There is suburban Fulton County. Yeah. You you go north, like North Springs, Sandy Springs, Roswell, all up into... That's you know, Milton. That's, that's Republican part of Fulton County. There are Republicans in dead center... Rock rib blue city of Atlanta. There are there are Republicans everywhere. This is like the argument, like, well, well, you know, California's votes, California's, uh, you know, uh, mainstream majority shouldn't rule the entire country when it comes to the presidential election. There are Republicans that live in California. Their votes should count equally, right? Right. I implore you. Every time you hear an argument about that, about oh, well, the Fulton County. Fulton County voters are tainted. They're not going to give an impartial grand jury. They're basically saying that a majority, minority city and county, you hear what I'm saying? People of color are incapable of doing what all white juries were summoned to do before the civil rights era for black plaintiffs throughout the South and much of the United States, if we're being honest. They're telling you that they don't trust that a grand jury or a jury that could be majority-minority is intellectually capable of rendering an impartial verdict. That's what they're saying. Actually, let me, let me zero in on that because that, 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 that point, I just I want to review exactly what Phil Kent said on the Georgia Gang, which aired yesterday on Fox 5 WAGA. Well, I think the special grand jury was very reckless. Uh, it was helter-skelter. We had all of these names. I'm glad there. And you mentioned, uh, I think it's very unfair to some of these people. Uh, some of these people are just exercising their First Amendment right of free speech. To-
By the way, we're not talking about Cop City activists here. We're talking about the folks who were trying to conspire to overturn the election results in Georgia. Just to be clear, Phil Kent is all for free speech when it comes to, I just need 11,000 so-and-so votes, but not folks who want to stop 90 to $100 million in taxpayer funds going to upset the delicate ecosystem of the South River Forest into Cab County outside city limits. Anyway, let me let that roll on. Question an election, uh, which we all ought to be able to do in America. Let's bear in mind, too, for viewers that... Unless you're Stacey Abrams. ...really don't understand the grand jury process. This is totally controlled by the prosecutor. Uh, the defense has no say in this. Uh, Trump and his allies could say nothing. So the, uh, the prosecutor uh, drew this from a Democrat-dominated Fulton County. And so mm. it's not surprising. Um, you've got 30 people here that were targeted. Now they got carried away. They, they got, as you mentioned, you know, two U.S. senators, uh, Mike Flynn, the former Great. national security advisor. I'm surprised the Pope and the Holy Ghost weren't on this thing. It just uh, was, went way, way too long. And I think even Fannie Willis realized this is crazy. And so uh, that's why it got whittled down to 19. By the way, Melita Easter's friend of the show, ah, chef's kiss, she points out the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of Fulton County is actually Republican. There are Republican voters in Fulton County. She mentioned Milton and Roswell, as I did earlier, and how that, you know, we have a GOP uh, congressperson who represents that area of Fulton County. We have folks in the state legislature who are Republicans who represent that area of Fulton County. But again, Phil likes to play the politics and the partisanship card. And again, with the same grand jury that also turned around and was used to level 61 indictments for Attorney General Chris Carr against cop city activists. No talk about that Democrat-heavy grand jury or blah, 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 blah partisanship. He's okay with that. Okay, sorry. I totally got off on a tangent there. Phil Phil King gets under my skin. I'm just sorry. It's he's, he's a caricature. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be dismissive or to be amateurish or or hurl at hominem, uh, at, at hominem, but he's a caricature. And uh, that show could do better. It really could. I, I, you know, I, is it just is that just where we are as a country where you have? And, and I know I'm biased. I, I know I'm biased. Uh, obviously, Melita is friend of the show, but she's also smart. She brings the facts. She brings notes. She's reading from the notes. Statistical data. There we go again. Math and science and data, logic, all with that liberal bias. And then you got Phil with his, well, I'm hearing and people are telling me and Antifa. Just, I'm all for a balanced discussion, but I'm really kind of tired of, like, American journalism in general, just uh, offering the the both-sidisms of things. If if journalism's idea is to get the story right, correct, I mean, I should say, to get the story correct, you you can't have one side that believes 4 plus 4 is 8, and the other side believes 4 plus 4 is Antifa is turning your children trans you know what i mean that's not (laughs) journalism shouldn't cover both sides equally then and we shouldn't have punditry shows where you just you you have folks who come in to present logical arguments even if they're not right at least they come in with some basis and fact and then you got antifa let's go back to the uh cop city press conference from earlier Uh, again 116 Thousand signatures submitted. 
nearly double what was required to get the petition on the ballot. And man, what a thing of beauty. The organizers did something like a bucket brigade to have the boxes come up the stairs from outside City Hall into the clerk's office. Again, there's narrative winning, and then there's narrative from Atlanta City Hall. Uh, I don't know who this representative is who's speaking. I, I assume he's an attorney. He's speaking like an attorney for the Cop City Vote folks. But uh, here's some more questions that he took from the assembled media. Given what's happening today, what's the odds, you think, of getting it on a November ballot? I think that it's, uh, particularly if they refuse to stop their verification process, the odds seem slim. Mm-hmm. If, if, if this is an effort to delay things and force it onto a later ballot, um, then it certainly has the effect of slowing down the process. So where do you go from here? Is this just reaching out to the courts <clears throat> to make a determination? Well, the first thing that we need to do is we need to talk to the district court and see if we can get relief from the district court. But again, it's not what we should be doing. It's what the city of Atlanta should be doing. Anybody interested in getting this petition on the ballot can call the council members and tell the council members, first of all, just put this on the ballot. Even if you don't want the, uh, even if you're still in favor of the project, why isn't it okay? Why is it right that the voters don't get to vote? And if you're not going to do that, at least tell your lawyers and the clerk to stop throwing every single available legal argument, no matter how frivolous or how technical, at this process. Allow the people's vote to be heard. And so we'd encourage the city of council to do that without having to receive calls from angry voters. But if voters need to call and tell them exactly what they think, that's what needs to happen next. Are you confident that the uh, signatures will remain safe? Do you know where they're going to be kept? Oh, How boy. they're going to be kept? Um, I, 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 we only have one person who's back there in the room, so I'm going to speak to that question. Yeah, they're, uh, they're in the storage closet 2705, the municipal clerk storage closet, um, stacked up over, you know, they're in there um, with limited access. The, only the municipal clerk uh, and the folks who work on staff have access. Are you glad that they sealed the boxes with tape and all that? Yeah, but I would be even more excited when they open them up and begin to verify, you know? Mm-hmm. Does the sealing of the boxes mean anything if they're subject to the Open Records Act? Well, I think uh, allegedly it's supposed to say that they're not going to be tampered with until, you know, they're, you know they open up and, you know, and scan them in, they open up to begin that verification process. And so, you know, um, we have our we have those same documents scanned as well. So we do have what we need to make sure that the documents that we submitted, you know, that we have, uh, you know, the the scanned copies of them. So I'm not concerned about what we have, you know. But if you all smell smoke, it's probably our petitions. Somebody go put the, put the fire out. What does today mean for I guess the more grassroots part of the movement? Like the the legal drama that's evolving right now is. Sounds like going to be a while before that's untangled. We've got the RICO charges, the terrorism charges, and now you know the city seems to be throwing everything legally it has at stopping the petition movement. So mm-hmm. what does this look like on the ground? Does this spur protests, marches? Um, this is uh, one of one of the comrades says this, and I believe it to be true that we are doing everything that we can to. Uh, to exhaust democracy, to use what we can at our disposal, everything within our our right to do so, right? The referendum being one of them, the protests, etc. And if we cannot find justice in the courts, in the systems, all the things, then we're gonna take it in the streets. So the city has options. One, one last thing, the city announced that 
verification process on August 21st. <laughs> they're, they're already planning all that and then they come up with this decision. What does that tell you what the city is trying to do with the releasing a verification process but not actually implementing the verification process? the process when you submit the signatures. Yeah, I think it's very telling that they're willing to sell the people's vote, voices and interests down the water in order to accommodate for uh, corporate and private interests and the interests of Governor Kemp and everybody else who want to see Cop City get built. And so I think that it's uh, showing that the people who we've elected uh, have betrayed us, have betrayed us and you know, they'll, uh, and our memories are long, so we won't forget. And that's the thing that concerns me most. Folks' memories will be long as we're heading into the 2024 election cycle. Local Democrats and silent state and federal level Democrats are going to need their support. Will they get it? I'm a bit concerned. Back after this. Final segment of The Ron Show for Monday, September 11th, 2023. 22 years to the date where a very usual Tuesday morning commenced to becoming one of the nation's most horrific days. I want to get back to the Cop City saga for just a minute. Uh, not a lot being said from folks on city council, but Liliana Bakhtiari did release a statement uh, a few hours ago, a couple hours ago. She said, Today, organizers submitted the referendum petition to put Atlanta's public safety training facility on the ballot. Throughout the debate over the facility, the city has asked that the public protest through democratic methods. The people listened, mobilized, and succeeded in submitting approximately 115,000 signatures. This is history in the making, and I must ask, which side of history do we want to be on? As an elected official, it is my responsibility to encourage and support the democratic process in all its forms, and I am deeply disturbed over lack of transparency and procedural barriers that have marred the public's ability to petition their government for redress. As an Atlantan standing on the shoulders of civil rights legends, it is my duty to honor that legacy, not just with words, but with action. Regardless of where you stand on the issue, this ballot referendum will provide every Atlanta voter the opportunity to make their voice heard. I also believe that this is a much-needed step in trying to build back community trust, and that is a win for all Atlanta. Again, that is City Council Person Liliana Bakhtiari. Just about five minutes before the end of today's show, and again, it's 9-11, 2023, 22 years since that horrid day where nearly 3,000 Americans lost their lives in New York, Pennsylvania, and in Washington, D.C. There was a piece that came out August 22nd in the Washington Post uh, an analysis piece by Philip Bump, the headline, The Inevitable Overlap of January 6th and 9-11 Trutherism. Subheadline, Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy goes a little too far in elevating skepticism about the government. The entire point of 9-11 Trutherism, Philip writes, that is in some way embracing skepticism about the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, is to position the believer as unusually savvy, too clever to accept the insistence of the experts or the federal government. The attacks occurred as the internet was still emerging into the mainstream. So conspiracy theories about what happened in New York and D.C. propagated quickly through a conduit, largely unprepared to address them. I remember getting the emails. You remember getting the emails? 
September 11th was a formative moment for the internet-driven do-your-own-research impulse, an impulse that has now manifested in a variety of other anti-establishment arguments, from COVID-19 to QAnon to the riot at the Capitol on January 6th, 2021. It's a shared heritage, Philip writes in the Washington Post, that unexpectedly tripped up a long-shot but surging candidate for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024. Instead of focusing on preparation for the first debate of the cycle, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy is instead carving out time this week to clean up a 9-11 mess of his own making. Remember, this was from August 22nd uh, last month. Ramaswamy's entire shtick is a sort of intellectually polished version of what elevated Donald Trump in 2015, embracing popular conspiracy theories in the manner of Trump but attempting to rationalize them through a rhetorical cleverness. In speaking to the Atlantic's John Henriksen, though, Ramaswamy got a little too cute, suggesting that perhaps 9-11 was somehow a function of government infiltration. At a dinner, Ramaswamy told the audience that the public could handle the truth about the Capitol riot. Henriksen later asked him what that truth was, obviously understanding that Ramaswamy was generally winking at conspiracy theories like those elevated by former Fox News host Tucker Carlson. Ramaswamy shrugged, offering a just-asking-questions response about the unsupported idea that government agents were involved. Then suddenly, Hendrickson wrote, he was talking about 9-11. I think it is legitimate to say how many police, how many federal agents were on the planes that hit the Twin Towers. Maybe the answer is zero. It probably is zero for all I know, right? I have no reason to think it was anything other than zero, Ramaswamy said. But if we're doing a comprehensive assessment of what happened on 9-11, we have a 9-11 commission. Absolutely, that should be an answer. The public knows the answer, too. Hendrickson pressed him on this, asking the candidate if he was actually uncertain about culpability for the attacks. I mean, I would take the truth about 9-11, Ramaswamy replied. I'm not questioning what we... This is not something I'm staking anything out on, but I want the truth about 9-11. He was going to say he wasn't just asking questions, but of course he was. That story published on Monday, it was the Monday before August 22nd, I should point out, that evening CNN's Caitlin Collins hosted the candidate for an interview. It was almost immediately confrontational. Ramaswamy's approach to traditional media is often to go on offensive, to treat his interlocutors as accusers acting in bad faith rather than as parties interested in testing the validity of his assertions. At one point, he dismissed Collins' questions about a past comment by insisting that she, quote, might be able to do this trick better with other candidates who don't really know how to respond to the game. And then she got to 9-11. The core of Ramaswamy's response to the controversy was to insist that he hadn't said what Hendrickson claimed. I'm telling you, the quote is wrong, actually, Ramaswamy told Collins. He added, I asked the reporter to send the recording because it was on the record. He refused to do it. But we had a free-flowing conversation. The Atlantic denies the claim. The quotes in the piece are accurate. Anna Bross, a spokesperson for the magazine, told the Washington Post, John's interviews were recorded and fact-checked. Of course, for those who are following that story, you remember The Atlantic actually published the audio as well. So we'll have that Washington Post piece, The Atlantic audio as well, in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. That's it for today. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, americaonradio.com, podcasting on all the major platforms, and available to you at ronshowatl.com. 
Have a great one. We'll see you tomorrow.